the world promises you comfort, but you were not made for comfort. You were made for greatness. You aren't some random person. The reality is, God has already made you his own son or daughter. He made you for something extraordinary. You are a literal son or daughter of a living God. This is Christ's New Generation on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. Thank you for joining us here on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. I'm your host, John Collin. I'm joined wonderfully by Jason Everett. Jason, how are you doing? Doing very well. Just got off the plane from Australia, so a little jet lag, but happy to be on with you. Wow, that's pretty exotic right there. So are you back to your hometown of Denver? Yep, I just landed in Denver. I just spent uh, four or five days in uh, Australia, New South Wales, and then went down to Tasmania to speak to some schools down there as well. Wonderful. So for any of the listeners who do not know who Jason Everett is, he is a chastity speaker, and he is renowned across the world. He speaks to high school and college students alike, talking about chastity and uh, other topics of faith. But here for the first segment of our miniseries, Christ in Generation, that is what we are here to talk about, chastity. So uh, for the next 20, 25 minutes, we'll just be talking with Jason Everett on uh, different viewpoints from high schoolers on chastity. And you know, specifically why the Catholic Church supports chastity and why it's so pivotal in the Church's teaching. So, first of all, Jason, let, let's just nail it down. What is chastity? Well, chastity is a virtue, kind of like courage or honesty, but it applies to your sexuality. And what it means is that you, you take your sexual desires and you order them according to the demands of authentic human love. So, it's often confused with abstinence, but that just means no sex. So it really doesn't tell you that much. So if you found out that somebody was abstinent, you know, maybe they're doing it out of love for their future wife. Maybe they just can't find a date. Maybe, you know, it just doesn't really tell you anything. It's really what you're not doing with your body. But what chastity is, it, it applies to your heart, your imagination, your eyes, the way you dance, the way you dress, the way you treat other people, to, to use the gift of your sexuality according to God's plan for that. So whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're a priest, chastity is a verse that we're all called to embrace to live out purity. Certainly. So obviously chastity, you know, it's a big thing for high schoolers and college uh, students to exhibit just as much if, you, you know, if you're in a marriage, but especially during this time, it's saving yourself for that special someone. Nonetheless, why is chastity part of the church's doctrine? Well, chastity falls under the cardinal virtue of temperance, which is the moderation of the use of a good thing. And the, that good thing is our sexuality. It's not because sex is bad, sex is dirty, not at all. What chastity does, though, Pope John Paul II said its function is to free us from the utilitarian attitude. And what he meant by that was that selfish tendency in all of us to use someone else for our gratification, whether it be our emotional gratification, our physical gratification, social gratification, whatever the case may be. And chastity really purifies your intentions because if a girl says to her boyfriend, you know, I want to save that for my for my future husband, and he gives her a hard time or he gives a guilt trip or he starts acting whiny or petulant over it, what you see immediately is that his intentions came to the surface. He didn't really want her. He just wanted the pleasure that he could get at her expense. So in that respect, chastity frees us to know if we're really being loved, and it also frees us to love because if we can't say no to our sexual desires, then our yes really doesn't mean anything. Yeah, that's definitely true, and especially because chastity, it brings forth 
true love. A negligence of chastity leaves many relationships centered on physical interaction aside from a true human relationship. And in any sexual interaction outside of marriage, whether it's the hookup or the unmarried couple, something is held back. And, you know, whatever is being held back, you know, can be traced back to a lack of sacrifice, in my opinion, because that's the whole meaning of sex. It's supposed to be an action of giving of yourself to another. Yeah, you know, so it's not meant to be reduced to a loan. And so the church's teaching on sex is really pretty simple. It's just that sex, love, babies, marriage just goes together. You know, and the total gift of your body should go along with the total gift of your person. And that's what happens in marriage. I am all yours. And that's what the sexual embrace says. When we're saying that body language outside of the sacrament of marriage, we're saying something like our bodies that's a lie in reality. You're saying, I'm all yours but I could be all somebody else's six months from now. And so it's a lie in the language of the body, whereas chastity is inviting us to speak uh, sexual honesty, speaking the truth with our bodies. Certainly, and especially with all these relationships nowadays, you know, it, it seems like a filler, to be honest, you know, between some high schoolers and, and college students. Yeah, they can have some amount of affection, but it's just a filler sometimes even for tribulations and those trials come up that can't be avoided by sexual activity, then there's that whole lack of clarity, am, am I really supposed to be with this person? Yeah, you know, and it causes a lot of unnecessary confusion because sexual intimacy, in a sense, blinds you and it binds you. It, it ties you very emotionally close together, or it should, kind of an emotional superglue, but then it also impairs your critical thinking abilities, it impairs your capacity to recall negative experiences, it makes you trust the other person more. And this is all the effect of a, a neuropeptide in the brain called oxytocin. And, and in marriage, that's kind of perfect. You know, you're not as critical of your spouse. You feel bonded. You trust them. You're not look, focusing on the negative. But outside of marriage, it's so dangerous because you've got these girls that their friends are telling them, look, this guy is not the right one for you. He's just bad news. And, and you know, and she'll make a billion justifications like she's deaf. You know, oh, no, well, you know, I know he's... He's got bad friends, and I know he's a lot older than me, and I know he's a convicted felon, and he hangs out with Sean Penn, and his name is El Chapo, you know, but, but he smells good. I can't break up with him, you know, so they, they end up in these just dead-end relationships because their judgment is toast, because that's one of the ways that God wanted our sexuality to work. He wanted it to make us less critical of the other and binded to them. Sir, overall, there is a natural desire to love. And, yeah. And... You know, it's so important, especially at, at a young age, to, to perfect this desire to love and to hold it for the one down the road and, and not try, as as famously used by many high schoolers and college students alike, the test drive. I, I know that you've talked multiple times through your talks that I've heard how the test drive is it's really not built up for what it's, uh, you know, for what it's meant to be, how it shouldn't be a focal point on whether you decide to spend the yeah. rest of your life with someone or not. Yeah, sex is not a tryout, because if someone fails to thrill you sexually, if that means that you love them less because of that, all that means is that you never love them to begin with. You're just loving the pleasure that you're getting at the other person's expense. You don't test, you test drive things, not people. You want to buy a car, yeah, take it for a test drive. Take it around the block, hit the tires, check the engine, you know, make sure it's all great, what you want. And what's going to happen in five years, though? You're going to find a better looking car, you're going to dump the old one, you're going to get a new one. You're going to do that with a spouse, too. You can't test drive 
marriage because you can't test drive something that by its very nature is permanent. And, you know, and as you said, the kids and, and the adults, I mean, well, everyone's looking for love because that's what we're created for. And that's why John Paul II said chastity can only be thought of in association with the virtue of love. It's not about waiting till I get married to love my girlfriend. It's about loving my girlfriend perfectly tonight through that sacrifice. Especially towards the guys. That's one of the biggest points of love. It is sacrifice. It is discipline and it's self-control. And it's something that you have to exhibit in the relationship before marriage. Because when you get in the marriage, it's not going to be a 24-7 affair where you're engaging in sexual activity. You got to have the discipline, you got to have the self-control, and you got to have the sacrifice to know the right time. Yeah, man, if you've got a 60-year marriage, I mean, what percent of that is being actually spent in sexual activity? Probably 1%. And if you don't know how to love your wife, the other 99% of it, good luck in that marriage, you know, because trust me, if you don't love her the rest of the 99%, that 1% is not going to be going up. It's going to be going much further down. And when you learn as a single person that abstinence is an expression of love, that's really helpful to bring into marriage because I just got back from the other side of the world where I was away from my wife for five and a half days. Well, guess what? Those five days of abstinence were an expression of love for my wife, for my fidelity. When I get home and she's had the six kids for five days by herself, she's going to be exhausted. I mean, you know, she's tired, she needs a break, kids crawling all over. Guess what? Abstinence again that I can be an expression of love for my wife. And sometimes there gets even more. A, f- a friend of mine married a girl that I know that when she was young, she had been sexually abused, and she never really dealt with it by going to counseling. She kind of toughed it all out. I'm, you know, I'll, I'm tough, I can handle it, and she is tough. But then within marriage, the memories started, the flashbacks started to come back in a drastic way, and she told her husband, I, I can't be intimate right now. I, I need some space to heal from this. And he's a good gentleman, and, and I understood that, and a week went by, and two weeks went by, and three, and four, and a month, and two months of abstinence, four months, six months of abstinence, at which point he's now really wrestling with God with this, like, God, you know, Jesus, I didn't sign up for this. You know, and Jesus told him, actually, you did. You know, remember that whole good time of bad sickness health thing? This is what it's about. And during that time of sacrifice, he questioned his own masculinity. My wife is just completely sexually unresponsive to me. I feel like less of a man. But he realized that by staying on that cross for love of his bride and making that heroic sacrifice to do his best for her, not only did God purify his own concept of masculinity, but through that sacrifice, he became more masculine to his bride than he had probably ever been. And as a result, his sacrifice helped to heal her. And you could see that if a guy got married, not understanding abstinence as an expression of love, what a greater trial that that would have been on that couple, where he'd start pressuring her and guilt tripping her, and it would have that trial would have probably divided them instead of ultimately uniting them. Yeah, obviously that's a great thing to throw out there that that you got to have that discipline and the lack of abstinence before marriage that's definitely going to transfer into the marriage but there are a few questions i got from some of the high schoolers and young college kids in the area and i'd just like to get your opinion on them and your answer on these are hot topic questions from kids in the area yeah all righty so how far is too far probably have heard that question how many times hundreds yeah more than i can count i uh but it's, it's probably the top question from the kids. And, you know, there's a couple different ways that you can answer it. If a guy answers the question, you could ask them, 
why are you asking me? Why don't you ask her dad? He'll tell you. But he doesn't want to ask her dad because he doesn't really want to know the answer. But he's really asking is not how far can I go to love her? How far can I go to respect her? It's basically how far can I go without getting caught? How far can I go before I get in serious trouble, before we get pregnant, before we're in a state of mortal sin? There's this mentality that, like, look, if it's a if it's a mortal sin, I don't want to do it. Or if it's a venial sin, well, I don't want to miss it. Well, that's the wrong mentality. It's like asking if I'm driving in a brand new car that I just got, some fancy Lamborghini or something, I'm not asking myself, well, how close can I get to hitting oncoming traffic? You know, whoa, you know, two <laughs> inches. I wonder if I could get closer. You wouldn't even ask the question because you value what you're in. But the fact is that we don't value our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't value the soul of our girlfriends. And as a result, our hearts aren't in the right place. And so we're asking the wrong question. How far can I go to get her away from God without being too far away from God? Well, we need a change of heart. We need to start asking, how close can I get this girl to God? How far can I go to respect her? And if you really want to draw a line, well, for one, don't do something with her that you wouldn't want someone doing with your future wife right now. Don't do something with her that you wouldn't do in the presence of her father, because he's her man. You're not. When you get married to her and he shakes your hand, then you become her man. But until then, you need to honor him, and you need to honor her future husband, because you might not be him. And so I would recommend keeping the passion for marriage that express affection in ways that are simple and that are pure, and you'll find by doing some. So purity becomes a lot easier because you're not constantly teasing yourself with these sexual desires and then having to slam on the brakes. Yeah, def- that's a great answer, especially on that question because it hits multiple focal points. But here's another one that I know multiple people who would love to hear a great answer to this one, but uh, dating is a big part of high school and of college. How can a young adult experience a chaste relationship while still enjoying the affection shared when dating? Well, I think one thing we have to take a look at, what's the purpose of dating? I mean, the purpose of dating is to find a spouse. And so here's the question. Is there a point of dating in high school? I don't think so. Because even if they have a stable, healthy, pure relationship, well, guess what? He's going to Louisiana State University next year. She's going to UCLA. She's going to meet 30,000 new college guys. You're going to meet 20,000 college girls. And then you're going to get a job in Boston, and she gets a job in Phoenix okay, well, what are we doing? Are are we really prudently planning the future? Because when you date someone, it's like you're getting on a road, and that road has two exits, break up a marriage, and that's it. And if that's reality, what's the point of dating someone unless you can see yourself marrying that person and at the right time as well? And so I think we really got to think about those things so that way we're not getting into these relationships where you got two 15-year-olds who are getting emotionally married and then physically married when marriage is still a decade away. So they're not exchanging the vows with their words, but they are with their hearts and their bodies, and it just creates unnecessary difficulty. And then once you do get into college and marriage becomes a more viable option in terms of how far it is away, I think you'll find that purity becomes, in a sense, a superglue between both of you, because the closer you get to God, the more perfectly you can love each other. And chastity isn't this cold shower, this dampening down of your attractions. If anything, it intensifies your love. That's why John Paul II said, the greater the feeling of responsibility you have for your beloved, the more real love there is. Certainly. 
Got another question relating to clothing, and this one is from a good friend of mine who, who is a who is a nice young woman, and she's got the question: Are bikinis okay? How can I show modesty in my clothing? Yeah, well, the, I'd like to go back to the invention of the bikini. Where the idea came up from it, it, it was invented by a guy named Louis Rayard, who is a uh, French automotive engineer uh, who worked for his mom's lingerie business. So he basically spent all day around women's underwear. And he was probably wondering, now, how do I get women to wear underwear in public? And he said, I have an idea. I'll make it waterproof. We'll call it a bathing suit. And so he created the first bikini. And then he had to find a runway model to debut this little outfit. And so he went to all the runway models in Paris at the time. And, and they wouldn't wear it. They thought he was crazy. He wanted them to wear their underwear in public just because it's waterproof. And they thought he was just gross. And so he kind of gave up. And he had to go to a stripper. Micheline Bernardini from the Casino of Paris, and he had to find a stripper to wear the first bikini because no other woman in her right mind would do that. And so when it comes to wearing a bikini, people think, well, it's just what everybody does at the beach. But it doesn't have to be that way. A friend of mine, Jessica Ray, she decided to rebel against this culture, and she started a modest swimwear fashion company and so her slogan is it doesn't need to be itsy bitsy and a lot of girls like this that you can actually wear an outfit of the beach that's cute but that's still classy and so i think we need to not just take whatever the culture gives us and say well hey this is the way it is but to step back and say okay is it really necessary for me to wear that little fabric in, in order to go to the beach and some girls will rebel with this oh well if a guy's got a bad imagination that's his problem if he can't keep a pure mind but what this is really showing is, is a lack of love on behalf of the, the guy the, the problem isn't the girl's body the girl's body's very good god made it that way but the problem is the heart of the man and if this is a weakness that he has it doesn't mean that if she gets treated respectfully it's her fault no absolutely not what it means is that modesty is an unspoken invitation to invite the guy to consider the fact there's a lot more about her than just body parts and so I think she needed to adopt the attitude of St. Paul, where he said, look, if eating meat would cause my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. And it's not that eating meat was intrinsically bad, but if that's going to cause his brother in Christ to stumble, then that's something that he can forego for love of him. And so if you can't let go of your bikini, you got to really think about that. Like, why am I so emotionally attached to wearing underwear in public that's waterproof and getting so upset that, that I might need to let go of that out of love for my brothers in Christ. Um, it's something to wrestle with, and, and it might be difficult to wrestle with, but sometimes that's, that's what God wants us to, to, to work through. Even though it's not easy, it's a sacrifice made in love. That's a great answer. And uh, to lead off one of your points, chastity isn't something that's going to hold you back. It, it's supposed to perfect the love, and especially mm -hmm. that, you know, not only in the physical act, but also in the body. The gift of sexuality is so important, and it's so beautiful that it is only to be shared with one person. Person. Yes. Yeah. You know, and so things like, for example, pornography, um, they're not bad because the body's bad. John Paul was attributed, it was attributed to him that he said the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, but that it shows too little. It reduces the human person to a collection of body parts. And so instead of being truly naked without shame, where love is swallowing up that shame in a committed marital relationship, it's a matter of becoming shameless. And when guys get hooked on this, and even girls get hooked on this, it really warps and distorts our understanding of human love that is ultimately a selfish act instead of a gift of self created um, for the purpose of babies and bonding.
Yeah, so we got about five minutes left in the show, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit up the pornography issue because I definitely want to talk about it within the next couple minutes. But just the last question I got from a high school, and I want to hit this one for the men out there. How can I discipline myself in a relationship to stay pure? Well, I would start with your imagination and your eyes. You can control what's going on in your brain and what you control what's going on with your eyes. Then it's going to be a lot easier to control what's going on with your body. And so when you see that beautiful woman, if looking at her is going to cause you to lust, well, bounce your eyes, look away. But that's not the ultimate goal of purity, to spend the rest of our life trying to avoid the sight of beautiful people. We look away so that we can look in and have a second to ask God, God, help me to learn how to look. You know, help me to look at a girl, and instead of seeing her as an occasion of sin, help me to see her as my sister in humanity. Help me to see her beauty as a reflection of yours. Help me to look at her beauty and immediately say, thank you, God. Thank you for making her so beautiful. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord mighty God, like that, that we can see her beauty and re- rejoice in that and thank God for that and move on. Thoughts of lust are going to come, but like a priest told me, he said there's a difference between having a bird fly over your head and letting it make a nest in your hair. So thoughts are going to come. Don't get overly disturbed by them. Just feel continually tempted by one person in particular or just women in general. Well, when you feel tempted, start praying for them so that you're responding to their beauty with love. I almost wish that we had more time to talk about this this topic, especially because we could have a whole segment on this one. Pornography is so present nowadays in the 21st century is insane and i've heard this one even from some of my own peers but the question of what's wrong with porn i'm not hurting anyone what's bad with it yeah well there's a lot of people getting hurt i mean first you've got the woman in the pornography she's very hurt i'm porn porn stars have an enormous mortality rate of drug overdose suicide murder aids read some of the interviews of people that have left the porn industry and they tell you what it's like there the abuse the physical abuse you know these scenes aren't like five minute romantic filmings no these filmings take hours to do they're punishing on the body and you know some of the women have said yeah i was in so much physical pain i couldn't walk afterwards i had to go to the hospital but the porn producer wouldn't drive me there so he just got a taxi for me and told me to go to the hospital myself and yeah they're not showing that on the porn film and if you actually knew what was going on in these women, I mean, I've known women that said, yeah, I had to leave porn after three abortions, four abortions, five abortions, three or four sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah, someone's getting hurt big time. So it's hurting the girls. It's hurting the little kids that are finding this. It's annihilating the marriages when the wife finds a stack of porn magazines in her husband's nightstand, and then she's like, well, no wonder we had so many troubles with intimacy. I mean, there are moments he's supposed to be making love to me. He's basically using my body to lust after these women in his imagination. But who it hurts the most is the soul of the guy who uses it. And not only his spiritual soul, I mean, it hurts his brain. The effects of porn are that they will actually sculpt the structure of your own brain. Neurologists will say this, and it'll train you to expect all women to live up with this fantasy of a disposable supermodel. Then you get married to one human being, and you think it's going to just last forever, and that marriage is like the fulfillment of porn, when in reality, porn is the distortion of human love. And so your capacity to actually love a woman is just being, uh, you're being emasculated. And so everybody is being hurt when it comes to the porn. And we're just trying to justify our behavior. Hey, I'm not getting anyone pregnant. I'm not getting anyone AIDS. Hey, I'm not contributing to the industry. I'm not paying money. Well, yeah, you are. I mean, if you go to a porn site, you're giving it for free. You're giving them tons of money because the more hits they get, 
the more they can charge for their advertisements. You know, some porn website owners have said, yeah, we make thousands of dollars a day from all the guys to come to our free porn site from the money we get from the advertisers. The more traffic we get, the more we charge, and all that money gets poured back into the industry to keep these women in bondage and basically giving guys all over the world porn goggles stuck to their eyes that they don't even know how to look at a woman except through this lens of lust. So yeah, I wouldn't say nobody's getting hurt. Definitely, especially towards the women. There seems to be this this idea that the women like what they're doing, but you talked about the mortality rate. I once heard this statistic, 57% of porn stars will die before they hit the age of 50. That is more than the fatality rate of B-17 bomber pilots in World War II. So, I mean, that is just, it is insane to think about that. Yeah, no, no, and there's no doubt about it because the the women in porn, you're not looking at like a naked body. You're looking at somebody's daughter who's probably sexually abused when she's a little girl. They're not doing this because, oh, the sex is just so fun. What a fulfilling, glamorous lifestyle. No, it's, it's money. And for some of these women, they're not getting paid. A massive number of women in the porn industry are owned as part of the sex trade industry. I mean, they're slaves being owned and being used and traded around and bought and sold and beaten and abused. And and yeah, if you had any clue what's going on in the actual lives of these women, that's why I recommend people go to the website, uh, Matt Frad's website, The Porn Effect. It's uh, The Porn Effect. Dot com and read some of the testimonies. Listen to some of them. Listen to some of the interviews he's got on that website. I mean, it's incredible stuff. If you really realize what's going on behind this industry, or go to our website, which is just chastityproject.com, click the button pornography, read for yourself. And once you really learn what's going on, you realize, I don't want to be a part of this. You know, this is a family. I mean, what, this is something I need to break free from if I'm ever going to actually love a woman let alone love all the women by not degrading them as a whole by partaking in this junk. Yeah, to all the listeners out there, definitely look at his website, chastityproject.com. Wonderful website. If you also got the chance, look up some of his videos on YouTube. But Jason would like to thank you again very much for coming on the show. This was a great segment, and I'm sure that the, the youth in our area definitely got a lot out of it. Well, thanks for having me on, and I just ask the listeners to please keep all the, the teams that we speak to in your prayers. It means a lot to me. Thank you very much, Jason Everett once more so we're coming up to the our break between the first and second segment so we'll head to it once again this is wsfi 88.5 fm catholic radio i'm your host john collin and you're listening to christ's new generation we'll be back in just a bit hello i am bishop don hying from the diocese of gary indiana Catholic Radio has a remarkable reach into the minds and hearts of all sorts of people who may not be going to church, who may not have any other connection to learning about the faith. I know so many people have grown in the Catholic faith because they listen to Catholic Radio. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. 
Hello, I'm Joe Scheidler, host of Pro-Life Today on WSFI Catholic Radio 88.5 FM. It's a half-hour conversation with leaders in the pro-life movement committed to protecting the most vulnerable among us. That's every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Or listen anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Visit WSFIRadio.org for more information. That's Pro-Life Today, every Monday at 3.30 p.m. only on WSFI Catholic Radio. Welcome back to this episode on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. This is Christ's New Generation, and we have entered the second segment of our show, and I am wonderfully joined by Father Sean Gould. How are you doing, Father? Very well. How are you? I'm doing quite well here as uh, we move on to the topic of faith segment of our show, and this is one of the most intricate and most pivotal parts of our faith, the Mass. What is our faith without it? So we just got to kind of move in. We'll just dive headfirst right in. Father, what is the Mass? Well, I think a nice way of summarizing it would be that uh, the Mass is the way in which you and I here and now in this time and this space get to share in the divine work of Jesus Christ. So there is a liturgy that is going on in heaven right now because Jesus Christ is alive And uh, as we hear about in the letter to the Hebrews, he's entered into a tabernacle not made by human hands. So Jesus, our high priest, is right now offering himself on the cross, but also in the glory of heaven. And he has given us the chance, in ways that I'm sure we'll we'll talk a a little bit more, to share in his work. That's the key. It's Jesus' work that we get to share in. Uh, That's the Mass. Yeah, that's wonderful and well put. So the Mass has got a lot of parts and a lot of moving parts. Why is it set up the way it is? Why is, do we have the Liturgy of the Word first? And why do we move on then to the Liturgy of the Eucharist? And what's the conclusion have to do with all this? The core of it, of course, is the Eucharist. And the key there is that we are doing what Jesus told us to do. If we were doing just what uh, even some people like the apostles, whether it be St. Paul or St. Peter, told us to do, and it didn't go back to Christ, it would basically be worthless. So it's a, it's a divine work that God himself has set up. So the Eucharist is the core. It's Jesus himself giving himself to us in such a way that we can actually consume him. But to get us ready for that so that we can do that fruitfully, that's why we have the Liturgy of the Word and those introductory rites, so that we are primed uh, in our soul to be ready to receive uh, the Lord fruitfully in the Eucharist. Uh, it's first, what it's doing is really mirroring conversion. Our conversion to the Lord starts out with a recognition that we need a Savior. And that's, the, that's that first work of the Holy Spirit that gets us into, into our heads that we are not perfect the way we are and that there's something more. So you think of saying, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. We've thought about our sins. We're now seeking the Lord. And then you hear in the liturgy of the word, depends on the day, Sundays more, uh, weekdays less, you're hearing how God has revealed himself to us through the prophets and then, of course, most fully in Jesus Christ and then how we can respond to him. So having heard, um, having known that we need a savior, we've then heard how the Lord is offering himself as a Savior, and then we are primed to receive him in the Eucharist. That's Certainly, that. and that is a big part of the Mass. It's just kind of moving towards yeah. the, the Eucharist and preparing ourselves for receiving Jesus' body and blood. Yeah. So 
we got the purpose of you know, to receive what Christ is, but one of the biggest reasons that people have on their uh, have on their minds is why do I have to tend? How come I can't do it by myself? How come I can't keep right. my relationship with God and closed doors? Why do I have to go right. out to church? So one of the things that we are constantly battling against is our temptation to think in terms of dichotomies, so absolute either-ors that exclude each other. And um, the evil one is always trying to use a little bit of truth to distract us. And the little bit of truth here is that we, of course, should be praying by ourselves in our homes or just out in the world. And that is a good and fruitful thing to do. God is present to every place and time. And so it is good to pray then. But what we also have to see is that if if we take it seriously, that God is real and he really has become human with us without ceasing to be God, who this is, that's who Jesus is, the moment that happened, particular times and places became more important than others. In that very moment of the incarnation, God has taken particular times and places and made them more powerful ways for us to be connected with him. And so now, if accepting the reality of the incarnation, we know that Jesus himself has said, we must do certain things to be connected to him. He's revealed that to us. We have to be baptized, for example. But most importantly, after that, we have to eat his flesh and we have to drink his blood. He says if we do that, we will have eternal life. And so that's the most important reason, that what we cannot do in our private homes um, just on our own is to have the Lord come in the way that he's revealed to us, giving us the chance to respond. And... Uh, it, it, he's decided for his own good purposes that this is going to happen through the church and specifically through the apostolic office in the church. He commissioned apostles to act in his own, with his own divine authority and with his own divine power. And we believe from, from then till now, from Pentecost until now, that apostolic power to act on behalf of Jesus is present in the church, in the bishops and priests. And what we get the chance is at Mass, especially on Sundays, is to be called out of the world, out from our private lives, and into that divine work of Jesus Christ that's going on right now. So that, that's, the, that's the main reason. We can't save ourselves. We have to be saved by Jesus. He's revealed that there is a specific way he wants that to happen. Could he do it in a different way? Sure. Uh, but he's told us he's done it in this way. So the the analogy I would like to I use sometimes with people uh, is that let's say you've got pneumonia and it, you're told that by taking penicillin it will cure it. Is it possible that you could cure the, the pneumonia in some other way? Sure. But if you're told, if it's revealed to you that you've got the, all you have to do is take this pill. <laughs> At that point, it's on you to respond positively. So we've got this disease called sin. Jesus is the Savior. He's the medicine. He's revealed that the way to receive it is in the Eucharist, um, especially on Sundays together with the whole church. So then it's on us to, to accept that that's the way it's going to happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> even if he could have theoretically done it in a different way. So, um, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Um, and I really like the analogy that's pointing out that there are plenty of other ways that Christ did it, but there's a reason why he did it the way that he has. But the Mass is often described as the greatest form of prayer that we can participate in on earth. How is that so? Right. You've got all different kinds of prayer. You have your private prayer where you are using your own words to tell God what you need or what you're thankful for. Uh, Jesus said to do that. Go 
into your rooms and lock the door. You've got private prayer where you are using other words like the Our Father, which he um, told the disciples to use. But then you've got the highest form, we say, is the, is the liturgy, and that's because it is the work of Jesus Christ himself. It is formal, but the formality is a good thing because that's how you and I, these private individual wills and minds, can be kind of sucked up into this, to this great work. We know that Jesus is doing this work right now. The only way in which it would really be possible for us to share in it is if he's told us how it's possible for us to do that. Otherwise, we're just making something up on our own. That's really then us imposing our will on him. But if we know that he gave authority, especially to his apostles, to act on his behalf, to call people to conversion, and then to do these amazing things, the sacraments, then they, we believe, have in fact established over time a format for that. And that's what the Mass is. So it starts with that that kernel. The seed is the Eucharist itself. This is my body. This is my blood. Using the words of Jesus himself with the bread and wine that Jesus used. And then around that, the Church has over time surrounded that action with other actions that we know are good for getting people ready for it. The Liturgy of the Word, the um, Songs of Thanksgiving and Praise, and, and so forth. Because it's the apostolic office in the Church, St. Peter and the Apostles, after them, the successor to St. Peter, the Pope, and together with the other bishops in communion with him, using that authority that they had to try and help disciples to know and love and serve the Lord. That's, that is primarily the liturgy. So there, there's all different kinds of prayer, but because uh, the liturgy, especially the Mass, is the work of Jesus Christ acting through the Church, that's why it's more powerful than any other, because because nobody can be more powerful than the Lord. <laughs> uh, it's, um, he wants to work in different ways, but as I say, the primary thing is that this is the way he's revealed that he is working, and so when we allow ourselves to be taken up into it, we, in an amazing way, we get to share in that, in that work. Certainly, and also because it encompasses yeah. so many amounts of prayer. You have yeah. the worship of, of song and singing, you, you have scripture, right. and of course... The big kahuna, the Eucharist. Yeah. So, that, so that's definitely a, why another reason why I just think it is just such a, a massive part of our faith and why it's such an, an important part of prayer. But an, another uh, question people may pose is why does it have to be led by a priest? How come anyone can right. lead the celebration of a Mass? Why does it have to be someone of the ordained life? Right. So that's the the specific power of a sacrament that we call holy orders. Uh, holy order is the power that the apostles received from Jesus himself that they then handed on to their successors, uh, the bishops and the priests and the deacons. It's the guarantee that what we are doing in the liturgy is not our private wishful thinking or our private wills, um, but the will of Jesus Christ himself. The key we, we have to pay attention to all the virtues, charity to chastity to, to everything. But when it comes to the liturgy, the most important virtue is going to be obedience. Obedience is allowing yourself to listen to the Lord and then to do his will. And it's the ordained minister who has received an explicit commission as well as divine power to fulfill the mission that he's received, who then um, can, on behalf of Jesus Christ himself, call people out of the world and then into this divine work. If it could 
Could Jesus have done it differently? Of course, the answer is yes. He could have commissioned everybody. He could appear, presumably, in private revelation to every single soul on the face of the planet. But that seems to be not what he's chosen to do. What he did do is choose specific men, commission them with his own power, uh, then to go out and make other disciples. And so it grates on our modern, especially our American and Western you know, worldly um, desires to be independent of any kind of human authority. But the key for us Catholics is to be able to realize that behind, and hopefully with, um, these ordained ministers is the Holy Spirit, and, the, and then through him, the Jesus Christ himself. We have to be able to see through uh, the human minister uh, to Jesus Christ himself. And if we can trust that the the, the sacrament of holy order has communicated to that man both the authority to act on Jesus' behalf as well as the power to do so, then hopefully we don't get too concerned about the guy himself and we, we see through him to, to Jesus. But the key of that, of course, is going to be the minister, uh, the sacred minister, doing what Jesus wanted to do through the church. That's why obedience. Obedience is the <laughs> virtue for a priest or a bishop. Um, everything else will follow from that. Very well said as to as to why we have to put our trust in the Lord and our, the trust into those who are providing the Mass and why it has to be men, well, how come only priests, and all those questions along those lines. But before we move into Lexio Divina, I've got one more question for you about the Mass, and that is, what is, in your opinion, the most important part of the Mass? Or are all the parts of the Mass equally important? No, I don't think they're all equally important, and the Church herself gives some indication of that because some parts can be omitted uh, at the priest's discretion or they, they change depending on the, um, on the day. The Eucharist itself is, of course, the most important. Without it, you, you don't have what's specific to the Mass. You could have a Liturgy of the Word service, and we do those sometimes without the Mass. You could have communion distributed by somebody who's not a priest, a, a deacon or even a, a lay man or woman. So the thing that makes Mass the Mass is to have the institution of the Eucharist in that very moment using Jesus' own ministers through the through holy orders, that's the priest or bishop, um, using his own words, using bread and wine to turn it into himself. And the reason that we say all every single sacrament is tremendously important, it's all instituted by Christ for our salvation. But we say that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith precisely because of all the seven sacraments, there's only one sacrament that becomes Jesus himself, and that's the Eucharist. Uh, so baptism is extremely powerful. It's absolutely important. We must all be baptized. That's the revealed way for salvation. And yet the water itself is not Jesus. It's just an instrument used by him through the Holy Spirit to take that soul and make it a part of him. The chrism is very important, but it's not Jesus. So it's it's only in the Eucharist that Jesus makes himself present even though we can't quite see him as we will see him in his glory, but he is present in basically the same way that he would he will be in his glory. So that's the most important part, uh, the Eucharist. Uh, the Eucharistic prayer, and when the, the priest actually says the, the words of Jesus himself. After that, I would say it's the, um, the scripture readings, especially the gospel. That's the reason why we stand up when we are getting ready to hear the gospel, why there are usually candles in a procession, why we would even use incense, which is an act of divine worship. And that's because when you hear the gospel, especially read by the priest or the deacon, you are hearing the words of Jesus Christ himself, as well as hearing about his very own actions. 
It is in that moment as though you were there at the Sermon on the Mount, that you were there with him in Galilee and Judea, and able then to hopefully have that moment of conversion. So right after the Eucharist, I would then say, is the reading of the gospel. And after that, uh, my own opinion would be he would have those um, actions of praise like the Gloria and the Holy Holy, especially the Holy Holy, which we, we say at every Mass, because that is the clearest sign that in that moment you are in the Mass, you are also in heaven. Right now, the angels and saints are singing God's praises. Cardinal Newman says, uh, we don't know what's going on in heaven exactly. Jesus didn't make that absolutely clear. We don't have tremendous details about it. But we do know that there's one thing that all the saints and angels are doing in addition to whatever else they do in heaven. They are giving thanks and praise and glory to the Most High God. That is going on while everything else is also going on. And so when we sing holy, holy, holy um, to the Lord God of hosts, we are doing exactly what the angels and saints do. So I think after the Eucharist itself, which is the Lord, and, and after hearing his words and, and about his actions, um, singing holy, holy is. Uh, and then the other, the other actions of praise are the, one of the most important. Certainly, so, that's beautiful. And yeah. we really could have a whole other segment on the yeah. Eucharist. We actually will have one, but mm-hmm. it's such a, such a big part of our faith, the idea that God came down to us and he's still distributed among us across the entire world that's just mind-boggling to me but speaking of the eucharist and the institution of it we'll we'll hit it up right now the the time that god put himself into the bread and the wine and turned into the body and blood and for alexio divina Mm -hmm. we'll be looking at kind of a review of the lord's supper and first corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 to 26 so once again i'll read through through the Lexio Divina first, and then Father Sean will kind of break it down for us, read it in a more meditative way, and tell us what the Holy Word is trying to speak to us. Mm-hmm. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this and remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the first thing I would um, point people to with this passage is the fact that St. Paul is saying that what he's talking about is not something that he made up. He received it from the Lord, what he then also delivered. There you, one, you see that virtue of obedience. Uh, St. Paul has allowed himself to first be converted uh, to the Lord, and then he's handing on exactly what he's received. The Eucharist would have no power if it was a merely human invention. All of its power comes from the fact that Jesus, who is God and man at the same time, from the moment of his incarnation, said that Uh, bread and wine are going to be his body and blood and that we must eat his uh, flesh and drink his blood to have life. There would be no way to know that the Eucharist is the Eucharist except that Jesus explicitly told his apostles and they have told us that that's uh, what's happening. So that's the first thing I would look at for um, in that first verse. Second is this, that he, he says that this is a new covenant. Our salvation 
is going to happen in a way that is consistent with how God has made us to be. The action of creation making us these rational animals, that is to say that we are incarnate souls, we have a mind and a will like the angels and the demons, but we're also in the flesh. Our salvation is going to take that into account. So he says there's a covenant, and a covenant is an exchange of promises that impose obligations. And they, as uh, Scott Hahn would say, they take us from being strangers to being something like kin, to being a family. Uh, we are the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God because um, he's entered into a covenant with us. The old covenants with, um, with Moses, uh, with Abraham, with David, they all lead up to this new covenant that Jesus has made. His promise to us is that if uh, he will raise us up, he's going to give us eternal life uh, with a real human body. And on our part, we say we're going to do everything that you tell us to do. We take you as our master. And that is sealed in a sacrifice, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that sacrifice, which happened at a particular place in time, is made present to us in this place in time, in the Eucharist. And so when you are present at Mass, um, one thing to think about is that in the moment of the Eucharist, uh, you are there at the foot of the cross where that promise is being sealed, made firm and strong. And especially if you're in a state of grace and you take communion, the power of that sacrifice has just been um, given to you. So, uh, so our free will is being involved. We are invited by God or even commanded by him to follow him. And the result of that is going to be eternal life in glory. That's the, that's the second thing I would look at, the covenantal um, relationship that Jesus is making with us. Every single time we do this, we do it in remembrance of him. Uh, there may be just a, a clarification we think of memory, doing something in remembrance, and it can have a merely mental sense to it. But biblically, scripturally, you go back, and when you are doing these things, it's not just that you remember that it happened. It's that you are actually sharing here and now in something um, greater. So it's not, not just a mental event, although it is that. It's, um, it's more than that. Physically and spiritually in your soul, you are... Um, are present to to the action of Jesus on the cross. So think of it like a circuit. You've got the light at the end of the circuit. You have the power at the beginning of the circuit. The power has to get to the light for the light to turn on. And you, that's when you flip the switch. You connect the circuit. Well, the eternal work of Jesus Christ, which happened at a particular moment in time on the cross, is made present to you and me through especially things like the Eucharist. That's the circuit being turned on. Um, that's what it means for this ha to, to be done in remembrance of him, not just that you remember in your memory that it happened, but that you are, uh, you're actually connected to it. Uh, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, so it's, we're proclaiming to everyone in the world that it's possible right now, right now, to be as much of a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be as connected to him as his blessed mother was, as St. Paul and St. Peter were. Um, there's functionally no difference between them and us in, as far as our ability to be connected to the Lord, especially through faith and the sacraments. So that's my, that's my quick take on <laughs> uh, that passage. Yeah, certainly. And, th and that is beautifully well put that the, the new covenant is this promise that God has for us where if we partake in a relationship with him, if we partake in the mass, and if we partake in the Eucharist, that we will receive eternal happiness as well as the fact that, as you said, it's in the capabilities of all of us. God has put that power in us 
to be as great as any of the saints within the church's communion, uh, yeah. the communion of the Church of Triumph. Right. But uh, unfortunately, we ran out of time for today's episode on the Mass. Why don't you just uh, lead us in a final blessing before we close it down? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you have bestowed many graces upon us, especially uh, and most powerfully the grace of the sacraments. Um, help us to be more receptive to the power of your grace, to receive it more fully so that we can be more prepared to meet you in your glory. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you very much, Father Sean Gould, for joining me. It's been a wonderful episode reviewing the Mass, but hang with us. We still have a testimony to be given from one of the youth in our area, so stay tuned here on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. This is Christ's New Generation. Did you know you can listen to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio online? Visit WSFICatholicRadio.org and click on Listen Live. That's WSFICatholicRadio.org and click on Listen Live. Hi, I'm Doug Berry from Life on the Rock. The importance of Catholic Radio cannot be underestimated. This is a medium that can reach into the hearts and the minds and the vehicles of individuals at any given time or day. This is one of those ways that we can reach hearts and souls that are hurting and that need to know the grace, the strength, the healing power of Christ. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois. 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. Hi, this is Brian Farley, host of Men of Christ Radio. For 10 years, through conferences, retreats, workshops, and special events, Men of Christ has been helping men to live their Catholic faith more boldly by exposing them to Catholic teaching, practices, and speakers that open eyes and change hearts. Well, now we'll be doing it on the radio, too. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, to be specific. Tune in every first Saturday at 10 a.m. and again every first Monday at 10 p.m. right here on WSFI for Men of Christ Radio. Spiritual warfare, the power of prayer, defending the church, and more. We'll be talking about all of it on Men of Christ Radio. For more information, go to WSFICatholicRadio.org. Men of Christ Radio, inspiring conversations about your faith, your family, your nation, your world, and what you, as a man of Christ, can do about it. Good evening, and welcome back to this episode on WSFI 80.5 FM Catholic Radio. This is Christian Generation. As we come down to the waning moments of the show, I'm joined wonderfully here by Taylor Aaron, who's here to give us a testimony. Taylor, how are you doing? I'm good, John. How are you? I'm doing quite splendid. So uh, to get on to this uh, topic of faith, of how you've evolved and growing spiritually, uh, how long have you been Catholic? I've been Catholic my whole life. So I was baptized when I was a few months old, and then I went to Catholic school, so I learned 
bunch about my faith and then I've continued with it throughout high school. Wonderful. So obviously as you're taking this faith, you know, through grade school and through high school, there comes a time when you can't just keep being pushed with the faith that you have to accept it yourself. And when was the, a particular moment in time when you decided that you're going to pursue a relationship with Christ? I think it had to have been my transition from grade school to high school because I went from a Catholic middle school to a public high school. So I didn't have that Catholic school pushing me, having me go to church every week, having me take religion class. And then in high school, I really had to like take it by, by myself and go to church on my own, go to youth group on my own, learn more about my faith on my own. And that's when I really decided that I wanted this relationship with God and I wanted to make it stronger. Certainly. Obviously going from the Catholic grade school presence into a public high school, it obviously must have been a a different outlook for you as you have to actually act out the faith. So speaking of acting out the faith, what are some ways that you yourself act out the faith, whether it's, it's going to Mass, whether it's participating in youth group, going to Eucharistic Adoration. Uh, what do you do? Uh, I definitely go to Mass because that's very important. But then I also help through my youth group and go on these sort of like mission trips that we do. And we go on a bunch of cool adventures where we get to help a bunch of people and spread our faith. Certainly one of these Catholic mission trips is Catholic Heart Work Camp. Can you describe some of your experiences from that? Catholic Heart Work Camp has to be the most energetic thing I think I've ever done with my faith and it's just so fun you get to meet a ton of people from around the United States and the world and stuff because you're going out from parishes all over and you're going and you're helping these people in need whether it be playing with kids just to help out a boys and girls club or painting someone's house or helping someone build a house and it's just it's so much fun that sounds beautiful so to move into your your prayer life you know what are your tendencies of prayer when do you usually pray what are your prayer habits I normally pray at night and I try to do it on a regular basis just to keep that connection with God and make sure that he knows that I still think about him. And But I tend to pray a lot to the saints when I'm in just like certain situations that I don't know how to get myself through or where I feel like I just need a little help or a little guidance on some situations. Certainly. Are there any particular saints that uh, you find you're liking? I definitely pray to St. Anthony a lot because I tend to lose a <laughs> lot of things <laughs> that I need help finding. So uh, he is probably the saint that gets prayed to the most in my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, St. Tony does come in clutch every <laughs> once in a while for, I think, all of us. But uh, as a final question... Where do you see your faith going? You know, you're moving off to college next year. How are you looking to continue your faith? Um, I see my faith growing stronger just because I am really going to have to push a lot more. Because, like, going through high school, like, I still went to the same church and I still hung out with the same people. But now in college, I'm going to be off on my own. I have to find my own church to go to. I have to find my own little group of people to help spread my faith with. So I think it's just going to make me stronger and closer to God. And I'm really looking forward to it.
Well, that sounds wonderful. Thank you very much, Taylor Aaron, for joining me here on the third episode of Christ's New Generation. We'll be coming back next week for the topic of homosexuality, so definitely tune in. We got some boundary breakers that you may not have heard about it, so nonetheless, this has been all that I've got here on Christ's New Generation. I have been your host, John Collin. May God bless you and keep you.